Hello, I'm Cathy Rensenbrink and this is the Bookseller Podcast. Hello and welcome to the February edition of the Bookseller Podcast. The Bookseller has been the magazine of the book trade since 1858. In our podcast, we bring you reviews, recommendations and author interviews from the best of this month's publishing. Today I'll be joined by Philip Jones, Alice O'Keefe and Caroline Sanderson from The Bookseller. And I'll be interviewing two authors this month. Kieran Millwood Hargrave will talk to us about The Mercies, her first novel for adults. And Lenny Goodings will discuss A Bite of the Apple, her memoir of her life with books, writers and Virago. And then we'll play out with an audio clip of Actress by Anne Enright, which is beautifully read by the author herself. So let me introduce you to this show's contributors and experts. We've got Alice O'Keefe and Caroline Sanderson from The Bookseller. Hello. Hello. And the editor of The Bookseller joins us today, Philip Jones. Hello. Philip, tell us, what's the hot topic in the world of books this month? Well, the hot topic at the moment is undoubtedly the publication of American Dirt by Janine Cummings, which has been hotly discussed on social media because of the content and background of the author. So this is a book about the uh, Mexican experience of trying to get into uh, the United States of America, and it's written from the perspective of a Mexican bookshop owner whose family are murdered by a drug baron, and she tries to escape across the border with her son, Luca, to get away from that violence that is um, surrounding her. It is, I think we all agree, a brilliantly compulsively written thriller that tells that story of the escape and flight to America. The first few chapters are like watching Breaking Bad or something, just an amazing, visceral, violent experience. But the book has been criticised by Mexicans and Latinos in uh, Mexico and in America for being inauthentic because she is not Mexican. She is a white New York-based writer. Uh, She has some experience via her grandmother, who was Puerto Rican of the immigrant experience, but it's a distance experience. She's been challenged for co-opting other people's stories, and it brings to the heart of publishing a really difficult conversation, which is obviously publishers' desire and willingness to defend writers' ability and desire to write about any subject they choose to, particularly in fiction, but also that growing conversation around cultural appropriation, around who can tell each other's stories and how we do that sensitively. And I think we can all agree, having watched this conversation unfold over the past few weeks and days, that this book has not been handled sensitively by the publishers involved, including Macmillan and Flatiron in the US and uh, to a lesser degree, because the conversation is less loud over here, but headline over here. Now they've got a real problem on their hands and they've had to cancel some of her bookshop tour dates and they've issued an apology for the way they've published the book. So to be clear, the US publisher has issued an apology for the way they've published this book. It again is a wake-up call, I think, to the industry, which is predominantly inhabited by white middle-class people, that we need to be very, very sensitive when we're talking about cultures that are outside our direct experience and for the industry to speed up that process of representation and diversity that it is trying to do but clearly has not done fast enough and it's a big growing I think issue for the industry. What are the mistakes made do you think? What has the publisher apologised for and do you think it's a fair apology? 
Well, they've apologised because they misrepresented her background slightly. They they said her husband was an undocumented immigrant, but but really he was he was from Ireland, so it wasn't quite a direct experience. She talked about the research she'd done and the fact that she had a sort of Puerto Rican grandmother, but I don't think that has really lent her any credence or authenticity in this regard. I think they've kind of oversold her background and her level of research in terms of the book. She has had some defenders, and she's spoken to lots of people who have experience of this and who come from those communities who have been with her on. This, on this journey. So it's not like they've not thought about it, but they have, I think, been a bit tone deaf in some of the, the things they've done. So they had a, a launch event at Book Expo, which is a big trade event in America, where they had a table that had kind of a barbed wire adornment. And obviously, that is uh, massively insensitive for the people who are actually genuinely experiencing the issues around, you know, trying to get into America. And the world is smaller in some ways, isn't it? All this sort of kicked off in America, but these days, largely because of social media, we're very aware of it, aren't we, in in this country? What do you feel the sort of the future of this book is? Has this sort of destroyed this book, do you think, the controversy around it? Ironically, the book may still sell really well. I think it's just outside the top 50 chart in the UK and may break into the top 50 chart next week. So the book may sell really well. I think it would definitely damage the future sales around that book. And I think, you know, it will be really hard for it to be shortlisted on awards without there being a great explanation why. So I think it will definitely affect its journey post-publication. I think overall, as an industry, we need to take from this the lesson that there are now voices that wouldn't otherwise have been heard that we can now hear and actually Mm -hmm. get to relatively easy. But if we can't get to them, well, they come to us via social media. And we need to wake up a little bit to the fact that sometimes it feels like there's a mob forming around a book and it will affect a book. And people get very defensive because without defending freedom of speech, freedom to write, freedom to publish, we are dead as an industry. But sometimes it's worth remembering that the mob is right. Well, as my friend Kit Duval, who's a very wise woman, says about cultural appropriation, you want to be very careful before you dip your pen in someone else's blood. Exactly. Let's move on to other books in February. Caroline, what's on your list this month? What have you been loving? Well, I'd like to start by talking about two terrifically transporting travel books. I think we we quite seldom talk about travel writing these days. I don't quite know why that is. I suppose we're growing to think that travel's a, a privilege and we're having to review that privilege in the light of climate change. But I've always loved travel writing. Uh, reading about other places broadens our mental horizons. I've loved that feeling since I was a child, actually. So there are two wonderful travel books publishing in February, To the Lake, A Balkan Journey of War and Peace by Kapka Kasabova. She grew up in Bulgaria and now lives in the highlands of Scotland. And I've long loved her writing, including her book Border, which won the Stamford Dolman Travel Book of the Year, and 12 Minutes of Love, which is about the history of tango. Mm. It's rather wonderful. So this latest book, To the Lake, uh, is about a little known corner of Europe from which her mother's family Hail. It's on the borderlands of Greece, North Macedonia um, and Albania. And it's sort of set around Europe's oldest two lakes, Lake Ohrid and Lake Prespa. And it's a really beguiling blend of memoir and the history of that region, which is very complex and also of travel writing, as I say. And I think the Balkans is just such a fascinating part of Europe historically, but very little known to us, I think. And she just writes so beautifully. 
And the other book that I loved is The Lost Pianos of Siberia. It's a great title. By Sophie Roberts. Exactly, yes. Doesn't it sound like a glorious title for a novel? Doesn't it? And indeed, it's got the epic scope, I think, of some of those 19th century, you know, great big 19th century Russian novels by Tolstoy and others. She writes, this is Siberia, where music reveals a deep humanity in the last place on earth you would expect to find it. And it's just completely revelatory. You know, you're used to thinking of Siberia, this vast, vast, you know, stretch of territory as a place of gulags and and of exile. But um, through the sort of frame of of going to search for the piano. So So the pianos became popular after Catherine the Great embraced the sort of Western passion for piano in the late 1700s. And so these pianos sort of made these precarious and far-flung journeys right across Siberia. And she goes in search of some of those pianos, including the piano the last of the Romanovs were playing in Ekaterinburg just before they were executed. So it's so alluring and beguiling as a piece of work. Well, thank you for transporting us to those frozen scapes. And you have a memoir as well, I think. And yes, my book of the month for February was one of them, From Albert Square to Parliament Square, by Michael Cashman, who is now in the House of Lords as Lord Cashman of Limehouse. And I think we're used to reading a lot of memoir, or I am at any rate, where it focuses in on a sort of particular part of someone's life. And I've read lots of brilliant memoirs like that. But I'm, I sort of build this memoir as the memoir that has everything. And just sometimes, you know, he's had such an extraordinarily eventful life born in the East End into a a working class family and sort of describes his trajectory really. He was a child actor on the London stage and then famously in EastEnders, first gay kiss in EastEnders Mm -hmm. and then went on to be a stalwart campaigner and activist for LGBT rights, a co-founder of Stonewall and then he spent, I think it was 12 years as an MEP and then now he's in the House of Lords. So it's just a very well-lived life and, and it's gossipy, there's lots of partying in it but also also this thread of activism in it and also it has a real beating heart too because it's also about the love affair between Michael Cashman and his partner and then husband Paul Coddington who sadly died of cancer a few years ago so it's it really has got everything and I I loved it and I was just full of admiration for his campaigning and for his stance on things but also it's just great fun. Lovely and I think we're talking to Lenny Goodings later on about her book A Bite of the Apple I think you enjoyed that as well. I did very much yes I mean I always sort of think you know we in business love reading books about publishing but it's it's just such a fantastic story of Virago and how that um, I mean I'm sure I'm not alone in having a wedge of green spines Absolutely. on my bookshelves of those Virago <laughs> modern classics and uh, yeah it's just just great the story of being involved in all that from the beginning and the authors that she's worked with it, it put me in mind of Diana Atthill's Stett in mm. terms of a, a, a great book about publishing about the industry that's got wider appeal I think. Yes I can't get enough of those sorts of books I must say. Alice what's on your radar this month? I'm going to start with a historical fiction it's actually the first adult novel from Kieran Millwood Hargrave who's obviously well known to readers as a children's writer. Her book, The Girl of Income Stars, won the uh, Waterstones Children's Prize, I believe, and also a British Book Awards Children's Book of the Year. So there's great excitement when we heard that she was writing an adult novel. Um, and this is wonderful. It's set in Vardo, which is a very small island off the coast of Norway, in 1617. Um, and it has the most dramatic opening chapter that I can remember reading for a while. Maren is watching as her brother and father, who are both fishermen, and they're fishing on the seas um, just off the island. And there is a storm which, in an instant, just claims 40 lives, just like that. 
and then the Marin and the other women um, of Vardo are left to fend for themselves until the arrival of uh, the terrifying Absalon Cornet, who is a Scotsman who has been sent to oversee Bardo, because obviously you can't leave women to their own devices. Who knows what will happen? And he actually has a past as a witch hunter, and he believes that evil has taken over the island, and he is the man uh, to root it out. And he brings with him um, a young, innocent Norwegian girl um, from Bergen who has never seen independent women before. Um, and so the stage is set for dramatic confrontation. This is actually based on the real-life witch trials of 1621, and it's wonderful historical fiction. It's beautifully written. She's a beautiful writer, um, and it's really immersive, and she really gets the sort of the claustrophobia of this fishing village and the suspicion and the whispers and the, the rumours. Um, it's, it's and all the, the stuff about the light is very well yes. done as well, because, of course, yes. there's not much light, and yes. the winters are long, and the summers yeah. are short, yeah. and the, the girl from Bergen can't really believe yes. that she, they, they keep saying you've arrived in the summer and it yeah. doesn't feel like summer to her. I loved it too. Yeah. We're talking to her a little bit yeah, later. She's wonderful. I thought it was a great and a great triumph for mm. her first adult mm. book. Absolutely. And hopefully there'll be many more. Mm-hmm. Um, the second novel I'm going to talk about, and I particularly want to talk about this because it's a big month for big names. You mentioned um, Ant Enright, um, Aravinda Diga, uh, Colin McCann, Graham Swift, lots and lots of big names. This is a name who I don't think will be particularly well known over here. She is a South Korean writer called Cho Nam Ju, and her book is Kim Ji Yong, born 1982. This book has been an absolute sensation in South Korea. It sold over a million copies, and from what I've read of the reviews in South Korea, it's been quite influential in really changing how people think which isn't something you can say of an awful lot of fiction, um, really. But it charts the life of the eponymous character, Kim Jong. From birth, she's, she's born uh, to a mother whose in-laws really wanted a boy. Um, and then her brother is sort of prioritised over, over her and her sisters. Um, and then it moves through her life. And it's very sort of economical, almost clinical prose. It's not sort of uh, fancy or... or um, lots of long words but it just follows her through the life and at school she's sort of preyed upon by male teachers and then she's sort of harassed by boys and her father says it's her fault and then when she graduates she finds it really hard to get a job because she's always being kind of overlooked in favour of uh, them giving the job to men and then when she does finally get a job she realises there are no women above a certain pay grade and then when she gets married she realises that actually she's not going to be able to continue with her career. She's sort of forced to give up her career for a life of domesticity. And the thing about the prose is it's these sort of culminative effects. You know, some of the injustices um, are very small. For example, she has to share a room with her sisters and her brother gets his own room. And some are absolutely massive, you know, sexual harassment. Um, But it just shows the sort of endemic misogyny and the institutional oppression that, that women suffer in South Korea. And I thought this was a really powerful read, actually. It's not a long book. And I found myself still thinking about it, you know, days after Mm -hmm. I'd finished it. Um, So I do recommend that people look out for that. Lovely. And then Jenny Offhill, the author of Department of Speculation, has a new one, doesn't she? She does. And I have to say, I loved Department of Speculation. I just thought it was dazzlingly brilliant and I'd never read anything quite like it so I was so excited when Garanta said that they had a new one um, from Jenny Orville. This is just 
so good. It's narrated by uh, Lizzie Benson, who lives in New York. She has a husband, a small child. She works in a library. She's a lovely woman. She provides sort of endless emotional support for her mother, who's a religious nutcase, and her brother, who um, is a former drug addict and sort of still struggles with everyday life, really. And then she's asked by a friend called Sylvia, um, and Sylvia runs this um, rather doom-laden podcast with a great name. It's called Helen High Water. Um, <laughs> and what's happened is this podcast is being listened to and is attracting an increasing number of listeners. And these listeners are emailing Sylvia about their concerns and their worries. And so Sylvia hires Lizzie to sort of respond to them. And this novel is very interestingly written. It sort of unfolds in fragments and the fragments echo sort of Lizzie's internal thoughts as they sort of skitter from one problem to another. And I'm going to quote the publisher, actually, because they they summed it up so beautifully when they said, it's about what it means to keep tending your own garden once you've seen the flames beyond its walls. So it's about modern life right now, about anxieties about climate change and the deranged political landscape um, and all the craziness, but how you have to kind of keep going Mm. through this. Um, It's expertly crafted. When I was reading it, um, it felt like a really sort of expansive book. And I was actually, it's only 201 pages. So she's sort of distilled an awful lot into her writing. And she's just such a surprising original writer. I mean, the questions sort of from the listeners and some of them are evangelical and some of them are left wingers sort of pepper the book. And some of them are so funny, like really (laughs) laugh out loud funny. Um, So it's a book that manages to be sort of profound, very funny. And it's just a joy, really. I recommend it so highly. It's the first podcast novel, you think? Um, It's appropriate we should be covering it. Yes, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she's, she's just wonderful. Wonderful. And that is the modern question, isn't it? How you carry on cultivating your garden when you can see the flames outside. I don't, of course, have many answers about that, but I do know that reading remains essential. Thank you so much, all of you, for coming and discussing the issues of the month and some of the best books published within it. Thanks very much. Thank Thank you. you. Pleasure. Kieran Millwood Hargrave is a poet, playwright and novelist. And in this, her first adult novel, she takes us back in time to Christmas Eve, 1617 and a storm at sea. Kieran, tell us about the inspiration for your wonderful novel. Thank you. Well, the first initial touch paper for this novel was a work of art by Louise Bourgeois, um, now on the site of the place where 91 men and women were burned on this tiny island of Vardia. There's a memorial and part of it is an installation by one of my favourite artists. And I read an article about this and I wondered why Louise Bourgeois had decided to make this really spectacular piece of art and put it in the middle of nowhere and that's when I started reading about the witch trials and discovered basically huge blanks and I think that's always an invitation for a novelist it shows that you have room when there's a silence there you always want to fill it so I decided to bookend my novel between these two events that are quite well documented, the 1617 storm that killed 40 fishermen and then the witch trials which began in 1621. And how did you go about finding out more? It was quite tricky. If you go on Wikipedia, the entry is very short and obviously that's a gift in some ways, but these were real events that I was that I was using, so I wanted to 
you know, due diligence had to be done. So I got in touch with an academic called Dr. Liv Helen Willemson, and she's based at the University of Tromsø. And she's just an extraordinary woman and is the only person to have really delved into this very dark chapter of Norwegian history. And she's actually translated all of the women's testimonies. So all of them get a voice through her translations. And she spent ages going through the court documents and pulling out and, and really listening to the tone of their voice. So it feels like they're speaking to you through her, which is a quite extraordinary feat of translation and, and study. She's a really interesting person. One of our main characters is called Marin. Am I saying that right? Yes. Yeah, so I say Marin because I'm British and butcher everything. But apparently it's Marin um, would be the correct pronunciation. But I'm afraid I will be saying Marin for, for ease. <laughs> Um, so tell us how your story starts. So my story begins, I wanted to begin with a really powerful image because that's how writing always begins with me. It's always like the first scene in a film or a freeze frame and it was going to be that storm, it, it had to be. And so I sort of take you through the eyes of my main character, Marin, and she is sitting in her house with her sister-in-law and her mother and they're fixing a sail. And her brother and her her lover and her father are all out on the boats, um, sort of going for their last catch before Christmas. And suddenly she feels this change in the air. Her, her body sort of tingles and she goes to the window. Something makes takes her to the window. And as she watches, the sea folds over these boats, folds entirely over these 40 men and drowns them in an instant. And you really, when I was writing that passage, I really put myself bodily into that character. And so you do feel it as a reader through through Marin and through her experience of watching this traumatic event. And really the rest of the book, it's about a lot of things, but trauma and the after effects of a trauma are really something that was forefront in my mind. I wanted to examine how people live with that because so many of us do. And it's not just over in an instant, you carry it with you for the rest of your life. And the women have to do things for themselves, don't they? Because all the men have been lost. But that's not allowed to endure, is it? Exactly. So they have to learn all these skills that they wouldn't have had. They wouldn't know how to how to fish for a start, which was the main source of food. You know, this is a tiny island. If anyone wants to look at a map, it's on the Arctic Circle. It's a speck. Um, so life is already very rough. But once you take away the main breadwinners, they're having to learn these new skills. And they're getting along quite well. A lot of the book sort of follows them creating this new matriarchy, if you like, and, and establishing themselves and their survival. But then an arrival comes that changes everything, that uproots the power dynamic. Uh, it begins with a minister who is sent from the mainland to sort of try and bring them back to the church, bring them back to God. But then a year later arrives Absalom Cornet from Scotland and he's been brought essentially to bring the women to heel. Mm -hmm. And he has previous, doesn't he? He's been involved in witch trials. Exactly. So Absalom Cornet is an imaginary character, but he is very much based on real witch hunters of the time from Scotland. And there was this trial of someone called Elspeth Roach, and she was brutally um, murdered, um, sort of in various stages. And so I was imagining the sort of man who would do that but still believe themselves righteous, actually murder a woman um, in Elspeth Roach's case with his bare hands and still believe himself to be on the side of God. What kind of delusion and, and self-belief does that involve? Because he believes he is doing God's work. Mm -hmm. And he has a new bride 
who he brings with him. She doesn't know much about her husband and his learning. No, so Ursa, she's like a breath of fresh air in this novel when she comes. I loved writing her in because it's so tightly knit and and in Vajra life is so harsh and and so cold and and suddenly you're sort of plunged into this narrative with Ursa who's my other main narrator and she's colour, she's light, she's had this upbringing in Bergen, she's the daughter of a, a ship owner who's fallen on hard times and who essentially marries her off to be to be rid of her because he can't really afford to keep his house with her and she travels with her husband who she gradually understands is not a good man and and that's very difficult because she wants to be a good wife but she realizes she can't love him and her and Marin are sort of thrown together um, and sort of try and find a way to survive together. I enjoyed all the domestic details because Marin goes to help Ursa settle into her new house and she doesn't you know Ursa doesn't know how to make flat breads and she's revolted by the reindeer carcasses how was that something you came across in your research or did you make all that up I've no No. idea (laughs) it was actually remarkably difficult to find out what these people ate other than fish because Mm -hmm. there must have been something but the answer was um when I was talking to Liv Helen um Willemson we went to the University of Tromsø and and we talked a lot to to people who would have known how these people actually lived because there's no trace of the settlements now. It was all raised various points through history. Um, And the answer is things like reindeer, they'd have foraged for herbs and they'd have lived off mainly fish but a little bit of meat and then flatbreads would have been a huge part of their, how they'd sort of keep stuff fresh, I suppose, or keep stuff edible for long periods of time, was they'd make these sort of flatbreads that slowly morph into crisp breads and you can actually eat them for months and months. They're essentially stale bread. (laughs) (laughs) But you'd flavour them if you could with fennel seeds and and you'd try and, and, and make them more appetising. But it was about survival there. It wasn't sort of gourmet yes it's a hard life isn't it it's a hard life even before the men die and it's a hard life even before the witch hunter comes and it really only gets harder doesn't it though there is there's plenty of light and shade as well tell us a little bit about the role of i was interested in superstition and envy and how they can interweave with each other in a very poisonous way. Yes, so i was interested in looking at a society of women and and thinking, how would that look truly devoid of men? And obviously, these women have grown up in a very patriarchal society, and they do believe in all the things about women being weaker and, and less able. But when they truly have to pull together, they do broker a kind of uneasy peace, even though they're all very different, they have different beliefs, different levels of beliefs. Leaders do emerge, but it feels like a far more... Um, community-led way of living. And then the second that the minister arrives, they're suddenly back in an order that they're used to. And there's one character, Kirsten, who doesn't want to give up her power so easily. She's very good at leading. She's very good at fishing and very good at being self-sufficient. So she tries to hold on to it, whereas others slip very easily back into that dominion, if you like. So there's a character called Torrell who's just essentially very religious in the way that... You know, she had to bring her eldest child up off the rocks after he was drowned. That has left a deep scar and she's turned increasingly to God and it's made her cruel. And yes, envious of anyone who seems to be coping. Mm. And so she's lashing out because she's hurt and she becomes a crueler person, whereas the storm makes other characters maybe softer. So I was really interested in looking, not passing judgment necessarily either, but really thinking about how would people react in such 
difficult circumstances. The novel comes to an end as the witch trials begin, really. I was interested in why you made that decision. I knew from the beginning I didn't want it to be a witch trial book. I feel like I've read that book and love that book. But I wanted to look at the circumstances that make such a thing possible. That was the real interest for me because I wasn't interested in having the torture of it. I wanted to see these women free and see how they lived um, rather than putting them through this ringer of of accusation. And you see the hysteria build, but I wanted to show them how they would have existed before this awful event took place and how it came about Mm -hmm. because we're always at risk of those sorts of events and I think it's important to to constantly be empathetic and be and realize that really it could happen anywhere to anyone thank you thank you so from Vardo in the 17th century let's take a hop through time to Soho and feminism in 1978 Lenny Goodings got a job at Virago Books and has never really left Lenny, take us back to that office. It was on Wardour Street, wasn't it, where we're recording today? Not far from here. I had very strong deja vu as I was walking up Wardour <laughs> Street, um, although it was much seedier then, and we were right off Leicester Square, very seedy in those days, up four flights of stairs, past a pinball arcade on the bottom, and Gentleman's Club halfway up, and then at the very top, these very industrious women. And I walked into this room, three women, Harriet Spicer, Carmen Khalil, and Ursula Owen were typing madly. The air was thunderous with old clattery typewriters. And, you know, I just thought, this is the air I want to breathe. It was about feminism. It was about creativity. It was about women's enterprise. It was just so exciting. So I got a part-time job. I am Canadian. I was only in this country for apparently a short time. And I remember writing back to my parents and said, I think I've fallen into something interesting. I might just stay a bit longer. The thing about Virago at that point, it was a very small and hugely energetic sort of up-against-the-wall enterprise. And I really recognised a lot of that because it sort of felt to me very like Canadian publishing had been at that point. Not the big publishing houses. Canada at that stage was sort of importing American and British writers and didn't really have its own sort of indigenous enterprise. But it was beginning. So people like Margaret Atwood, Mm. Alice Munro, Michael Ondaatje, and a lot of them were very involved in the publishing houses. So Margaret Atwood, for example, was very involved with the Nancy. So I think I was prepared for that kind of enterprise that, you know, you just put yourself on the line and you do it all from a tremendous belief that you're you're doing the right thing. And it's exciting. Mm -hmm. And your part-time job very quickly became a full-time job, didn't it? I had two jobs for a year. I had Virago for um, one day a week. And my other job was Writers and Readers Publishing Cooperative, which was on the next street over, Rupert Street, in a kind of clapped-out warehouse. And it was a true cooperative in every sense of the word. We published people like John Berger and Arnold Wesker and the Beginners series. It was also very exciting, but a little chaotic, <laughs> it has to be said. And it was like going from day to night, because the Virago, though it was alternative in so many ways, it was not alternative in the way it was run. You know, it had a very serious hierarchy and Carmen Khalil ruled the roost Mm -hmm. and to great effect. 
Tell us a bit about, I very much enjoyed your book, A Bite of the Apple. Um, I like the subtitle, A Life with Books, Writers and Virago. And you you say in the introduction to it that you like books that don't fit in a particular category and that you yourself have sort of enjoyed having a wide-ranging look over this life. Tell us a bit about the ups and downs, the ins and outs of Virago, because it's had various iterations, hasn't it? I made my book a sort of hybrid book because one of the things I discovered is it couldn't write just a straightforward chronology. I mean, I could, but I wouldn't find that very interesting. And I feel other people will write about Virago from the outside and give all its history and make sure everything's covered in every book that we published. We have published nearly 4,000 books at this point, 1,000 authors. And about 100 women have worked at Virago over the years. And I thought, whoa, that's kind of that's quite a lot of history to try and sort of manage. <laughs> at the same time, I wanted to talk about things that I've thought about a lot when I've been a publisher over these years. And some of it's gendered reading, for example. I wanted to talk about the sort of rise and fall in feminism. I also want to talk about how it is to publish idealistically into a commercial environment. Mm-hmm. Because... Virago is not a lobbying group, it's not a library, you know, it is a business and it has to make a profit. And I'm very interested in how from the outside it feels like profit and idealism clashes. And it does, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but how you manage that. You know, one of the things about Virago always was that we wanted to show the world that women could run a business. Mm-hmm. I mean, now that seems, you know, kind of obvious, but not in those days. Well, sometimes we need to remember how recently it was that, you know, a woman wasn't allowed to hire a TV without her husband's signature. Mm. <laughs> um, tell us about, wh- why did you want to write the book in the first place? Tell us about your journey from, um, you know, you've been an editor for years and then what made you want to dip a toe in the murky waters of memoir writing yourself? <laughs> I so did not. <laughs> I so did not. I, I, I call myself the reluctant memoirist. <laughs> and um, in fact, to be honest, I'm surprised this turned into a memoir. I didn't mm-hmm. start that way. I just thought I would put down some ideas. And, um, but how it started is because I sat beside my now editor, Jacqueline Norton at OUP, at a dinner that uh, we were having for Naomi Wolf, one of my authors. And Jacqueline did that thing that I do too, and I think if you're a, a reasonable editor, you do too. So you sort of sniff and you think, hmm, there could be something here. So she said afterwards, why don't you write a book about idealism in commercial publishing and stuff? Because that's what we were talking about. And I said, no, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. She said, come on, it's only 40,000 words. I said, no, I'm not doing it. Definitely not. But then I'd see her at the London Book Fair, things like that. And she would always say, what about that book? What about that book? And I suddenly thought... You know, I have been at Virago for a long time. I've witnessed some really interesting things, both in the company and sort of what's happened politically in the world over this period. And I thought, well, maybe I know stuff. (laughs) So I started. But it took me a long time to find the voice. And I found that very interesting myself, like a sort of split, because here's me, the editor. Because one of the things when you're encouraging a writer to write is to find the voice, as you know. It is the most, you know, until you've got that, until you've discovered, are you faux naive or are you the little girl you were at the time when you're writing about your mm-hmm. childhood or can you look back on yourself or how much omniscience do you have? All these kinds of questions. And are you confessional? Are you cosy? Are you stern? You know, mm-hmm. all those things really, really matter. And I was avoiding putting myself at the centre of this story because I'm not at the centre of this story as I 
you know, there's a lot of authors, other people founded it. But then I finally realized I am at the center of my story. Mm -hmm. And the only way to make a, a good story, I then had to go to that, was to be a powerful central voice. Mm -hmm. um, and that was quite interesting. Was it odd to become, you know, it's a bit poacher turned gamekeeper, wasn't it? Was it very strange to be on the other side? Did it perhaps give you more sympathy for your authors over the years who oh complained my God. about things? All my authors, <laughs> I'm laughing. I tell them when, when I meet them. Now I say, oh, my God, I cannot believe how hard it is to write a book. <laughs> and they all laugh just like that. Big hollow laughter. Yes, I was staggered. I feel if you're an editor who's worked alongside authors like I have for years, I mean, some of my authors I've published for 20 some odd years, you feel you understand the stamina required, but you don't. Mm -hmm. You don't. You know, I mean, it's a lot to edit a book. I read, when I'm editing, I'll read a book three or four times. So I feel that's a lot of work, but it's nothing like putting it down. <laughs> I feel I want to sort of type that out and on behalf of all authors, send it to all editors and agents everywhere. <laughs> yes, I don't think... And the other thing I think you don't realise as an editor or as a publisher, I mean, you you feel you're behind your author and you're supporting them. But I think you probably don't really completely understand that ultimately the author's alone. You know, you're all your supporters, they're there, but they're behind you. You're the one that's out there with your name on the book. And it's very exposing. So it's been a great lesson, yes. <laughs> and tell us where you are at now. You're still involved with Virago. Yes, that's right. Yes, I still work part-time at Virago. I'm called Virago Chair, and I have all my authors still. Mm -hmm. Just about to publish Marilyn Robinson this year. And, that's uh, exciting. Yes, so I've got the best of both worlds, I would say. And would you like to share with us maybe just a couple of highlights for us? What would you remember at the end of hopefully lots more interesting publishing life? I think what I would say I have learned through publishing is how writing gives people courage. And you certainly would know that from your book, too. Um, so I've watched Maya Angelou, um, Marilyn Robinson, Margaret Atwood, Linda Grant, Sarah Dunant, Sarah Waters. I've watched these writers meet their readers. Mm -hmm. And I've seen what people take, you know, what they... I mean, with Maya Angelou, it was like... Her sense of how important it is to treasure each other, you know, to have the dignity. And that would be a Marilyn Robinson um, sort of message, too. Mm -hmm. And people take that. And because you've, they've read, right, reading is such an intimate experience. It's you all alone with the, the voice of the author. When they meet the authors, I mean, often they cry, of course, but it isn't just that. I, I do think the words give people courage, and that is an amazing talent there is magic in gift. it isn't there don't it you think sometimes magic. beyond what we understand what yeah. we understand as individual readers writers publishers there's this peculiar alchemy that happens I really agree and it's it's very exciting when you witness it when when there are events so you get the readers and authors together but it's also what people write to you I mean we've always had a really um, energetic relationship with our readers and so I see what books mean to people and it's, you know, I'm proud to be part of that. Thank you. That's it for now. We'll be back in March. Thank you to Kieran Millwood Hargrave, Lenny Goodings, Philip Jones, Alice O'Keefe and Caroline Sanderson. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Bookseller Podcast, please consider leaving us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice as this helps new listeners to find us. If you'd like to talk to us, you can tweet at The Bookseller or come to our Facebook page or just email us on podcast at thebookseller.com. 
And now, here is a clip of Actress, written and read by Anne Enright. I loved reading this novel about a woman's relationship with her famous mother, and this little extract makes me want to experience it all over again, read out to me by the author herself. Doesn't she have an incredible voice? That will be a fine way to end the February edition of the Bookseller Podcast. This has been a heavy entertainment production. I'm Cathy Rensenbrink. Thanks for listening, and happy reading. Some months ago, I got an email from someone called Holly Devan requesting an interview about my mother, the kind of thing I would have turned down at one time. But I was getting nostalgic for interviews. It had been a while and regretful also for my own long failure, as I thought, at that particular game. As a novelist, I mean, not that it mattered. Damn, the articles got written, books got sold, more or less. It was a small agony of the most banal kind. So I invited Holly Devan out to the house in Bray and I gave directions because it's not on any GPS, which is one of the many good things about this little town by the sea, that there are corners and cul-de-sacs known only to the people who live there. They are so old and tucked away. In the morning before she came, I looked about my life a little and found it satisfactory. I straightened pictures, ran a cloth along the skirting boards. I mustered myself, that is, for whatever accusation was about to be levelled or none. Sometimes they don't accuse you of anything. They don't try to prize anything out of you or prize you out of anything, your shell, your complacency. Sometimes they don't bother disbelieving you. It must take so much energy, I used to think. They just have a normal conversation, take notes, leave, after which they write something enormously wrong-headed, just to keep you on your toes. But, you know, not always. Holly Devan arrived at the door on a blustery cold day in spring. Her car was not parked so much as abandoned along the neighbour's wall. A child, it seemed to me. Dark pea coat, beanie, scarf, wispy blonde hair. She was, she told me 20 minutes later, not really when it came to the business of men. She wasn't really, she was actually, though she did like men, she explained, and she sometimes dated men. It wasn't, you know, in that heteronormative way. Mm-hmm.